Welcome back to the Depth and Light Podcast. I'm J.D. Pirtle. Today our conversation is with Dale Doherty. Dale is a co-founder of O'Reilly Media. He is also the founder of Maker Media, which publishes Make Magazine and initiated the wildly popular worldwide Maker Fairs. Dale is considered the godfather of the Maker movement and continues to be one of its greatest champions. In previous episodes, we've had conversations with several people associated with the Maker Movement. We've talked a lot about how the Maker Movement in schools is giving students and educators opportunities to demonstrate learning. But how did this movement really start? Recently, Dr. Matthew Skinner at the University of Kent and his collaborators on the GRASP project discovered that proto-humans have been creating and using tools for 3 million years. They've determined the biomechanics of hand use by our ancestors through the analysis of fossilized hand bones pointing to tool use much earlier than previously believed. Tool creation and use has continued virtually uninterrupted for all of human history. Making things is who we are. But steadily humans have self-categorized into two groups, one who can and should make things, and the others who hire them or buy their products. How did it come to this, and how does the maker movement fit into all that history? Many theorists attribute the rise of the DIY or do-it-yourself movement and the maker movement to gradual shifts in how students are taught in schools. Schools have overwhelmingly shifted away from providing students with hands-on learning opportunities through making and fixing, and have focused on test prep and rote memorization of facts. As a result, these theorists point to the rise of DIY culture in the 1970s, which continues to this day and aligns with the maker movement. Build-it-yourself radio kits sold in the 1970s have much in common with the Arduino starter kits sold on sites like SparkFun and Adafruit. Similarly, the magazine Popular Mechanics is the ancestor of Make Magazine. Of course making things is natural to us, but sadly there are still many people who see someone making something like a crocheted hat or a 3D printed prosthetic hand and think, I can't do that. And the majority of K-12 schools offer little if any opportunities for students to learn to design and build things. So this movement needs champions. Individuals like Dale Doherty are working to help everyone feel like they can be a maker. He is also empowering educators to provide design and building opportunities in the school day for students of all ages. Dale, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to uh, uh, to talk to us, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. I think a lot of people see you kind of as fully formed and are very aware of your work in a lot of different industries and worlds, but what were you like as a kid? What were you interested in when you were really young? It's kind of interesting. I, you know, I, I tend to think one of the things that's formative for me, I was sick a bit as a kid. I had mm-hmm. a, a leg disease, and I was sort of immobile uh, in the hospital a lot, and and I, I think, you know, it, it actually challenged me to use my imagination, you know, to, to get out of that space, uh, either watch TV or use your imagination. Uh, 
and and I, I think you know I, I sort of was a, a reader, um, mm-hmm. uh, but but it, I even saw reading as just a, a means to you know stimulate your mind, you know, just of uh, thinking about things. So, and and I, I think uh, uh, you know I'm I'm I wasn't a a, <laughs> a, a maker pattern, if you will, uh, growing up. Uh, although mm-hmm. actually, this sort of gets me to roots. I I was fascinated by by recording equipment, you know, little mm-hmm. little uh, little cassette recorders and 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 playing with that stuff. Uh, and then you know, then eventually got to computers and. And, and going on from there. But uh, I think that a big thing for me was, was books allowed me to learn on my own. And, mm-hmm. and then the internet kind of came in and it was just a flourishing of, boy, there's so many things you can learn. And if you have the right kind of way of looking at it, you can do almost anything. Sure. So almost learning to learn was something you yeah. focused on. Yeah. Rather than, than, you know, expecting to be taught all the time. And, and I think once, once you sort of trust yourself and you kind of know what you want to learn and, and, and you do it when it's important to you, um, mm-hmm. that's kind of a, uh, more important than school is, is actually figuring out what you want to learn and, and how to get there to, to how to, what, what's the best way for you to learn that. I agree completely. So once you recovered from this illness, what, what did you, what were you doing in high school? What kind of interest did you have then? I, I, well, I say, you know, I was, I was interested in sports and things, but I couldn't really play it uh, too much mm-hmm. because, uh, some injuries. So I became somewhat of a, of a more a fan than a player in, in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I was, I was probably just sort of more interested in English literature and history and, and things like that in school. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I never really, um, um, I, I, I don't know. I, I never found a lot to really grab onto. Uh, I'd say as a, a kid, I, I didn't know who I was or what I wanted to be or what I wanted sure. to do. Actually, the only thing that sort of emerged from high school was that I actually wanted to work with, I knew, I knew I was, I cared about people and the, the impact on people more than mm-hmm. I cared about other things. Um, you know, some of that was, you know, all through high school and things I worked in restaurants and other things. And I, you know, bartended and, 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 and waited tables and that kind of stuff. And, you, you know, you, you sort of grow used to understanding, reading people and talking mm-hmm. to them. And that was really beneficial. Um, it's almost like, you know, book knowledge is over here and, um, people, people knowledge or people skills is, is kind of a different category of things. Sure. So you're really kind of focusing on soft skills before that was yeah. you know, like a term that everybody yeah. was tossing around. So what happened and after work, high school? You know, yeah. you know, I, I I entered the priesthood. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, uh, I st- for two years anyway. I was in a program. I attended a Catholic school, a uh, Catholic college in Bellarmine in, in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, you know, I, I I like to think of it. It wasn't necessarily driven by a deep religious conviction, but it was driven by a desire to help people and mm-hmm. uh, be in their lives when it mattered. Uh, mm-hmm. I thought that was really interesting and it in some ways it was a bit of a rejection of the the world itself of of mm-hmm. uh, uh uh sort of business and money and and all that and and i i i'm very idealistic and wanted to uh explore those things and so that you know the you for two years you're in the priesthood and then you did you continue yeah. to a different college or yeah i went over to university of louisville and and just finished up as an english major and okay commu- kind of in a commuter school um that wasn't didn't necessarily have a strong um, uh, 
uh, well, I was in the uh, study of priests, uh, there was a community of, of, of others to, to be part of, and, and that was mm-hmm. really strong and beneficial. Uh, there was a, there was a feeling of being part of, in a sense, a tradition as well as something that was active and alive. Uh, and I sure. liked that a lot and you kind of lost that and, and, uh, and, and, you know, just be you know, going somewhere else and trying to figure out what to do then. And so kind of jumping forward a little bit. So how did you and Tim O'Reilly meet and start working together? Yeah. Well, after uh, college, um, I moved to uh, Boston and, uh, I worked in some restaurants there for a while and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and then, uh, left and, and eventually got back there and, and I, I, I took a, a class in technical writing at, mm-hmm. uh, Northeastern and it was a way to apply some of the, some of what I, I knew how to do. Uh, and, you know, Tim had started a technical writing company, just a kind of freelance, uh, company in mm-hmm. in uh in the boston area and he was just looking for people that could write computer manuals and i didn't know anything about computers really uh, other than having an atari or some other things as a kid but right. uh you know I, I knew how to communicate and i i always thought tim was a classics major at harvard and i was an english major and and uh what we focused on is what did people need to understand about these tools and and uh, you know often you were talking to engineers who, who had a hard time actually explaining how the thing that they built worked. Sure, to <laughs> and, like a layperson, how, yeah. how it would be used. So I, I was thought the the one thing I learned is a, keep asking questions, even though sure. they sound dumb. You know, there's a reason you're asking the question, even if they look down on you and act like you should know the answer to it. Just keep mm-hmm. asking the question until you understand what the the answer they're giving you, because often the answers they gave you were inadequate. <laughs> right. So kind of di- di- distilling this kind of domain knowledge for just the regular yeah. folk who want to learn it. Yeah. Do you still advocate for like kind of a thorough understanding of like working at the command line or com- in a well, command line interface? You know, we grew up using it. Um, and I was the first experiences I had programming. Um, uh, I, I think one of the serendipitous things that happened is that we uh, were writing manuals about Unix computers and uh, Unix grew out of Bell Labs, a mm-hmm. bunch of smart people, you know, the C programming language and all the um, environment of, of Unix. But it also had this documentation tools um, that uh, Tim and I used to produce the manuals. And, and they were sure. they were kind of built to create uh, research papers that went along with the research at Bell Lab. And so they were mm-hmm. pretty intricate. But, but uh, they also built these utilities like Sedanoc, which were really good at, at just text processing. Mm-hmm. And so SED is a, is a it stands for stream editor. And it was for matching, um, uh, using pattern matching to identify strings of text. And I, I mm-hmm. thought it was a, it was almost like a game, you know, to, to mm-hmm. say like, how do you, in this large pool of text, how do you pull out the things that you need, and how would you, not only identify them, but then transform them or change them, modify mm-hmm. them, and then, uh, and 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 so things, uh, you started developing tools yourself, like to build an index for a manual. Um, well, you put tags in a file, but then you have to collate them and sort them and do all these kinds of things. And that, sure. you know, it, the thing that struck me 
is that I, I probably would have never been someone to just learn a programming language for the fun of it. But when I had real problems to solve and I had right. tools that I could understand and 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 uh, the the act of programming was was really satisfying. I, I thought, mm-hmm. in many ways, as a kid, I never identified strongly with math and, and those subjects. Mm-hmm. It was more like philosophy and logic and, and and grammar and that kind of thing. And you know, there's a way of looking at programming as logic and grammar and sure. understanding it. Not and, and you know, there, there certainly is math there, but uh, uh, I, I wish. When I was younger, that people would have saw, saw those pathways, say from philosophy and logic, into programming, and mm-hmm. right? say, "Oh, well, you, you're not good at math, therefore you, you know, won't be good at programming." Sure, I, I certainly encountered that when I was in school. I mean, the kids who were offered the programming classes when I was in high school were people who were already really high achievers in math, and it sounds right. like you continually use this humanities lens to kind of yeah. look at your work in the world. Um, Absolutely, and I, I think. You know, going back to the relationship with Tim, I think it, you know, we were working with really technical people, not only engineers to write manuals, but then eventually books and uh, then to conferences and things. And I I think we just saw them a little differently uh, uh, because we saw what they were about, not Mm -hmm. just what they did. And to us, they were kind of normal people that that cared a lot about certain things. And if sure. you paid attention to what they cared about, it was really easy to understand them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I think that we, we sort of, uh, I think together, uh, learned things about technical communities, how they're formed, how mm-hmm. they uh, function, and, and what makes them work. And it has sure. very little to do with sort of business and, and conventional structure. It has more to do with what people are, are really interested in. Sure. So like identifying their passions and kind yeah. of hearing yeah. them talk through their passions. Yeah. Why they did something, which, you know, uh, Eric Raymond famously, uh, you know, wrote in his, his book, The Cathedral and the Bazaar, when he was asked why uh, did open source programmers develop code for free and mm-hmm. not as a business, he said, well, to scratch their own itch. And right. I think that a very active scratching area is something I've kind of, you know, followed through some some different phases here. Uh, you developed Global Network Navigator, the first commercial website in 93. Um, what was it like to develop for the web? You know, originally, uh, you know, writing manuals um, on contract, we started to save uh, the rights to and began to publish it. And nobody was publishing detailed information on Unix. And that's really how O'Reilly got started is we just... Uh, there was, you know, these different utilities and different problems for these uh, mini computers and, and others, mm-hmm. and we wrote about them. And I, I, I became interested in the fact that we were writing about computers and, and, but publishing in print. And that mm-hmm. eventually it seemed to me that, you know, if you're a system administrator or a programmer, you'd want to get this information uh, on the computer. Uh, so I was really interested in how do we put our manuals into, into electronic form. And it led me down uh, a a path where I didn't really find the answer to that, but something else came up, which Mm -hmm. was the World Wide Web. And 
I had formed a group called the Davenport Group that was looking at standards for, for computer manuals and how we could put them online because people like Sun Microsystems wanted to have uh, manuals on a, a CD-ROM or DVD, uh, mm-hmm. not as physical things. And uh, and it was really hard uh, to, to, to work on that standards level, which I won't really go into, but I... We had a meeting that was in conjunction with a hypertext association meeting in San Antonio, Texas in 1991. Mm-hmm. And uh, Tim Berners-Lee was giving a presentation, uh, um, a, a poster session, uh, because he wasn't accepted into the main program. And mm-hmm. uh, I met Tim there, saw what he was doing, and, and that was the World Wide Web's really debut in, in America. Wow. And, um, you know, began following it. And I said, well, this this is really interesting. See, the challenge I had a little bit was I, I was looking for free or uh, what we call today open source tools for distributing information rather mm-hmm. than there were a lot of kind of proprietary things which required everybody to pay hundreds of dollars for a viewer, reader, or whatever. Sure. And that was never going to work for, for us as a publisher. And I, I kind of saw the web as this interesting new infrastructure that you could, you know, click on a link and, and uh, uh, you know, pull up a document from Rome or London or New York mm-hmm. and, and, and access it. And so I really started to think about, well, what is this good for? And initially, o- O'Reilly had a book coming out, uh, um, Internet, um, whole Internet Guide. And uh, so I thought, well, let's take the, the there was a, collection of links in the back of it uh, we would call links today and I thought we let's just put that online in a form where you could click on it click on it and go to looking at an astronomy website or mm-hmm. photos from the Vatican and things like that so really the idea was to try to catalog some of the things that were out on the web so that new people coming to the internet would would be able to find things that they were looking for mm-hmm and so later on, you and Tim popularized the term Web 2.0. And I mean, do you think that, you know, the Internet as it is today, the social media, various app ecosystems, I mean, just do have we fulfilled that original concept of Web 2.0 or are we past that? Um, I know there's been talk of like Web 3.0 as a concept. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the origin of Web 2.0 for me was was that in a sense, Web 1.0 had been declared dead by mm. investors and what I was seeing was that some groups of developers were were building web applications. One of them, early ones, was Etsy. Mm-hmm. They weren't they weren't paying attention to investors. They were paying attention to the fact that they could build things a lot more easier, more easily than they could with uh, Web 1.0. Mm-hmm. They didn't have to build everything. They could kind of build on top of some of the work of other people. And, uh, you know, it was just sort of the insight that the web is still, it was growing faster than ever. Who cared if the investors weren't making their money back on Mm -hmm. kind of rash investments that the web would take over tomorrow? Um, There were still more people coming on and more people were doing things. So uh, that, and and Tim had a really, I think, important idea of how open source was was forming a, a, a platform and in, an infrastructure that mm-hmm. could be used by everybody. And at least in that window, we believe that this new internet and web wouldn't be dominated by just a few players. Um, it was an open infrastructure that 
was kind of a greenfield for lots of people, lots of companies uh, mm-hmm. to form. Um, it kind of turned out a little differently, but that was the hope in those days. Sure. So transitioning a little bit, uh, you have said that what we do is based on the fundamental truth about human nature that we're born to create, to make stuff. Yeah. What led you to that realization? Well, you know, initially I was, you know, watching people do some things that, you know, scratching their own itch. They were playing with robots. They were playing mm-hmm. with different things. And in 2003 or four, when actually I was sort of also working on the Web 2.0 timeframe, I, you know, the emphasis a lot was was the, the new iPhone and mobile, mm-hmm. and and I, I and almost you know uh, everything was going to be on your computer, the whole world at your computer, mm-hmm. and I, I just saw people tinkering and doing things, and I thought, well, that's a that's a whole other this physical computing and stuff is a whole other world, and mm-hmm. I I had the idea a little bit from doing some work at O'Reilly, a series of books called Hacks, which I was kind of interested in how people were hacking systems, software systems, and, and changing them, modifying them, or using the interfaces they had to uh, make something better, sure. uh, something they wanted. It wasn't what the manufacturer intended. Mm-hmm. And, and I had the idea that people might start hacking the physical world the way we were hacking software. And that, that sort of led me to down a, down a path that, that was essentially the magazine, uh, Make Magazine, uh, that uh, like the open source world, we wanted to do projects. And Mm -hmm. what people shared was projects. And I wanted to have a magazine that shared those recipes uh, behind the project. Not just say, oh, I built something cool, but how did you do it? Uh, And, you know, put step-by-step instructions in there so someone could learn how someone else did something and then apply it to their own problem or their own idea. Mm-hmm. That was sort of the core thing. And just, you know, the more I, I looked for, I just, you know, in some ways I didn't find a person doing one kind of thing. I found many people doing lots of different things. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe if there was a real aha thing, it was, you know, magazines could be make and I'm going to call our audience makers. And they mm-hmm. do all these different kinds of things. They don't sure. just... You know, they're not unified by a platform uh, or a technology. They're actually what connects them is their interests and the, the, the fact that they manifest their interests in projects. So kind of almost going back to what you said about the community that you felt in the when you were in the seminary and yeah. then, you know, you're, when you were talking before about listening to people describe their passion. So kind of unifying yeah. those two concepts in an interesting yeah. way. And I, I think what was really fascinating to me was finding... Uh, you know, when people are connected around interests, it's it's a choice. Uh, uh, most times, people are connected around their family, the, the geography, where they went to school, or mm-hmm. the discipline or field they're in. And this is uh, when you start meeting people that, uh, and I, I think one of the really great things about DIY, do it yourself, is once you initiate doing something, you mm-hmm. suddenly start meeting other people doing it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it opens uh, not just the the the, the learning the, how to do things to you, but it opens that community to you as well. Absolutely, I totally agree. Um, so you're often referred to as the Godfather of the Maker Movement. How do you feel about that moniker? Well, you know, I, I think of <laughs> in, in two views. I mean, I mean, I think I think I've done a lot to help the Maker Movement. Um, uh, 
uh, persist in the world, um, but so have others. And and mm-hmm. movements don't ex- exist because there's a, a singular leader, in my view. They, they exist because, back to what you said earlier, there's something fundamental here that's true about us as human beings. And sure. I think what I try to do is express that and demonstrate it. And, you know, then through Maker Faire, show what people do that help to people almost remember something they had forgotten, mm-hmm. you know, about themselves, about our culture, mm-hmm. uh, about their their own lives, you know. So that's, that's what I've been focused on. And, uh, you know, I, 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 but in the same ways, I've always been more interested in what people are doing and, 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 and trying to put a, a frame around it that 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 helps other people understand that because a lot of times this will get expressed as oh well it's just a bunch of hobbyists and I go mm-hmm. what's wrong with hobbies what's mm-hmm. wrong with that right or you know there's people having fun <laughs> they're just kids having fun they're not learning and I go how do you right. know that right you don't and and I'll bet on the kids that are having fun learning a lot more than the kids that you know are being you know told what to do. Uh, and just obeying them. So I, I think one of the things I'd say when we talk about the movement, I, I think, it, and, I, and almost more in retrospect, I realize it now, but I, I think a lot, um, uh, uh, President Barack Obama in his inaugural address mentioned the, the risk takers, the doers, the mm-hmm. makers of things. Mm-hmm. And I think that had as much to do with creating a movement is, is certainly in anything I did, but we may have given him the, the words and the framing mm-hmm. for that. And, and I think he, you know, it was also sort of a cultural moment that he was very supportive of uh, the sort of the creative uh, acts of people uh, and their contributions to our society. Sure. So, I mean, I think that that you clearly gave like a huge boost to the movement. But what I mean, do you think that there's this is something that people who are longing for or had missed or had forgotten that caused this to be such a phenomenon? I think one, it's it's when I started the magazine, I I had this real sense that I was going to help adults go back and rediscover something they did as kids, Mm -hmm. you know, and and that they might actually want to do this with kids of their own. But, mm-hmm. you know, e- even as you get older, you start to get a little bit of time uh, back and, and you, you kind of start asking, how, how am I going to spend that time? What am I going to do? Mm-hmm. And what do I enjoy doing? And, and sometimes it's, it's going back to that, those things that you uh, explored, things that you did because you were curious about doing them, uh, not because you actually knew where it led. And, and mm-hmm. I think this is actually one of my big learnings going back through all the open source and the web is that I don't think often people do things because they, they know where it's going to end up. They, mm-hmm. they do things because it's interesting and they, they want to be involved in it. And, um, and I say this in the, in the sense that today we talk about entrepreneurism and, and other things. And that's, it's a positive thing. But sometimes I just see busy people, oh, I want to make a million dollars. Well, that's just the end result. That doesn't interest me, right? But what is it you really want to do? Um, mm-hmm. what, gets, what gets you going? What gets you uh, 
connecting and, and, and learning and, and, and doing things. That, that's what I think is interesting. And most of us don't, and maybe it's even sort of a, a gift that we don't know where this would end up because we mm-hmm. might not have done it in the first place if we understood the trouble we were going to get into. <laughs> kind of the open, open into nature of these kind of projects. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so last June, um, a lot of us read in the news, you know, that maker media laid off 22 people. And one of the reasons cited was kind of decreasing corporate sponsorship or support. Why do you think big corporations have kind of moved away from supporting initiatives like this? I think two things could be true here. Uh, in some ways the support has broadened and, and, you know, corporations as well as most, you know, learning institutions have maker spaces now, mm-hmm. um, they're trying to get at the same things that we've been getting at. Um, we have no proprietary claim on any of it, so, so sure. you're happy to see that happen. Um, but I think, you know, a lot of Silicon Valley and a lot of business is is they they sometimes appropriate the word community, but they're not really about that. Um, mm-hmm. They extract things that they need, and uh, they don't really give back. In meaningful ways, mm-hmm. so I, I think, um, you know, when we did Maker Fair Bay Area last May, when I look at the audience there, you know, maybe forty, fifty thousand people, something like that, wow. walking around. Um, you know, these are the people that work in Silicon Valley and their families. Mm-hmm. Is mm-hmm. you know, and yet, yeah, it's really kind of hard for me to get the attention of some of the marketing folks in Silicon Valley. Say this is worthwhile, sure. you know, and. I don't know. I'm in it for the long run, and that's why I tried to bring this back because this is this is something that may ebb and flow in terms of its cultural moments. Mm-hmm. But it's uh, it encouraged me when I started make that I could go back and look at popular mechanics and popular science magazines, popular mm-hmm. electronics, and see that this spirit was the, the, uh, uh, popular then, mm-hmm. uh, and many of many people who became engineers uh, learned on things like heath kits and mm-hmm. and learned to to tinker and uh, learned with chemistry sets uh, and I think those kind of things have have escaped notice of, of a current generation uh, until mm-hmm. sort of the maker movement came in and started bringing this in that you know we I think one of the big positive outcomes of the maker movement that I don't think anybody could challenge is we've actually done a grassroots educational reform that is mm-hmm. really, really hard to do. And we had almost no budget to do it. And it certainly didn't come down from leaders saying this should happen. It came from teachers and students making it happen. And mm-hmm. uh, and it, it gave you know a lot more uh, students access to uh, experiential knowledge, to actually doing things, try trial and error, and mm-hmm. uh, and, and you know so much of of even educational technology has been about just dissemination of knowledge and not the understanding of it and the incorporating knowledge into practice into you know an an application. And anybody that you know has ever done anything with computers and technology, they're they're practical. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they they see a problem and they know how to use the tools to solve it. And whether that's technology or woodworking or some other set of things like welding, um, that that's what I think we've been promoting is that it isn't just book knowledge you need. And in fact, book knowledge doesn't provide often the 
the grounding for you to, to do stuff. And mm-hmm. when you, what I kind of say is we're putting practice ahead of theory so that when you start to do something, you kind of understand the limits of what you know. And the more you know, the more you can do. Sure. And, 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 it, and what excites me is this is not just about finding brilliant kids out there. It's actually empowering more people to, you know, to learn and to do things that matter to them. And so, you know, I love the B, C, and D students, you know, that uh, uh, sometimes are really, like myself, you know, bored in school, wondering what, I, what I'm going to get out of it, what I'm going to do in life. Sure. I was that kid too. Yeah. Um, so since June, you've been working tirelessly to guide Maker Media into its next iteration. So what yeah. is the future of Maker Media? Well, I'm, I'm still trying to f- figure it out, but, um, you know, essentially I had, I had two goals. One is I wanted to protect what we had had created, um, the meaning of it. Uh, and, and second, I, I wanted to figure out how does this, how does it become sustainable? Because I believe future generations need this as well as the current one. Um, mm-hmm. Some people said to me, hey, you you did your work, 15 years of make and maker fair. Maybe you should just, you know, say thank you very much and go home. And, and you know, part of me feels uh, that that would be a signal that this is no longer important to right. people. And I didn't want that to happen. And so, you know, I, I can't, you know, where I feel really confident is I can't think of anything better I could do with my life than to you know keep promoting this this movement and to invite more people to participate and get involved and so the new the new company the new organization is is called make community mm-hmm. and I'm I'm trying to figure out the structure of it and what it'll be but I, I think of it as an association that uh, makers who have been involved with Maker Fairs and others, I'd like to invite them to come in and just like they might support public radio to support um, mm-hmm. support what we do and support this view and and almost from an activist point of view, we have to we have to create this in the world. It doesn't mm-hmm. just happen. It might be part of our nature to do this, but I always use this example: if you know, kids might be athletic, but we wouldn't know that unless we had ball fields and coaches and teams and invited them to participate. And same with music and same with almost everything else. So, you know, you have to cultivate this and that's kind of what we do. But mm-hmm. I think we do it most effectively through a community approach that it's it's something that's passed on uh, person to person and, mm-hmm. and in groups. It's not, it's not just coming up with like a, a make curriculum and saying that's how everybody needs to learn. It's through these accumulated experiences that we become makers. And, uh, and part of those experiences is having other people that coach us and guide us and encourage us. And mm-hmm. that's what I think kids need and aren't getting enough of in school. They're just being demanded to perform, mm-hmm. you know, for a test. Uh, and and uh, often uh, told that they're not good enough. And I think, um, you know, I, I look at the success of sports in our culture and, and I go, that, you know, very few kids will become professional athletes, but look how many people are participating in it when they're young. Oh, yeah, that's such an interesting analogy. I mean, you touched on this a little bit um, before, but, I mean, you know, so many people love Maker Media. I mean, how can people get involved? How can people help with this effort? Well, I... Um, go to make.co. Um, we'd love to have you become a member um, mm-hmm. of make.co. Um, you could also subscribe to our magazine. Uh, 
you know, in the in the new issue that came out, I published a letter from a 14-year-old kid that, you know, really talking about how the magazine, of all things, a print magazine in the in the, mm-hmm. in the digital age, you know, helped uh, helped him understand who he was, what he wanted to do, and gave him the confidence uh, to do it. Uh, so I think that's a that's a, a really big thing. Um, go to a Maker Faire. Uh, I'll be at Maker Faire Orlando this weekend. There's Maker Faires in Hyderabad in India, um, in Salzburg, Germany. Uh, there's two others. Uh, oh, Shenzhen, China, and uh, Guadalajara, Mexico, all this weekend. So that shows, you know, that's what I'm proud of is, mm-hmm. and I'm not organizing them. I go to to, to watch them, but you know, people in those communities have have put forth the effort to organize makers and organize an audience for them, uh, and it 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 is it's a side of our, our humanity that we don't see enough of. That I think it makes you feel optimistic and encourages you to be creative, take risks, and try things. And uh, we don't see that enough on TV. We don't see it on the internet even. Sure. And and to some degree, you have to experience it to uh, to realize uh, what it is about. Yeah, I mean, one of the I mean, obviously, the work I do is in K through twelve schools. But one of the most exciting and fastest growing areas of the maker movement is in schools. And yes. you've stated that the maker movement has the power to transform our education system. How do you see this happening in the schools you visit or hear from? Well, let me tell you that one thing I would love to see all schools move toward is that every semester you know each student gets to do a project Mm -hmm. and you know we call them sometimes in the higher ed like a capstone project i actually think they should be called cornerstone projects because it should be not something you do at the end but something Mm -hmm. that is a part of your learning life right and and from Mm -hmm. the from as young as possible but you know, not just you know a, a teacher-led project, but a student-centered project. When when it's their ideas and interests, I don't care if the project is drawing on a piece of paper something that's in your head. Uh, it could be that, but we increasingly have more and more accessible tools for you to build a prototype of that idea and to see if it functions and to understand if that prototype does what you expected it to do what you wanted it to do if it really solves a problem or expresses your idea very clearly so that is you know i I think our conventional education system is is performance based on testing Mm -hmm. and i'm saying you know what about performance based on making or creating uh based on projects just as you know uh if you were a music student you go to a recital you you perform for other people you do all that practicing uh to be able to do something with it and so making is a practice uh, it's not uh, what it disturbs me sometimes in education it gets just seen as an activity oh we'll get our kids to do something for 20 minutes you know every two weeks and i don't think you would have a very good baseball team if that's how much time they got to do this so it requires time to practice it requires some guiding guidance in in being effective at at that practice even but ultimately the outcome that i'd like to achieve is is you built something you created something it could be artistic it could be uh, functional it could be um, you know a a business thing it could be anything but uh 
you will discover a lot about yourself and what you know, and it'll encourage you to, to learn more. So I think traditional education has been about the content, not the experience. Mm-hmm. And I think the maker education is say, let's put the experience forward. And the content is all around us. We can find anything we need to know online, but we don't, we're not often motivated to, to learn all that content. Sure. So, I mean, it sounds like um, exposure and frequency of these experiences is one thing you look for in an authentic program with this. Yeah. But what are other signs of authentic learning in a makerspace in a school? Well, I, I think the the autonomy of the, of the students is a huge mm. thing. That are they making choices? And, uh, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to mean unlimited choices, but if there's a choice between A and B, that's a choice. And, and that's a real positive thing uh, to encourage mm. uh, rather than saying, you know, I think the worst instantiation of maker education, be a teacher standing up and say, you know, we're all going to build this uh robotic car together today. Um, mm. We'll all do step one, and then we'll all go on to step two. And and there's a forced march through that procedure. Sure. And I'd rather see a bunch of parts thrown on the table and, and say, well, what could we build out of that? And sure. uh, for those that struggle, you can guide them. But it's interesting to uh, think about uh, how, how do you really get the, the student discovering this for themselves. Um, a self-directed learning is what I'm really after here. And, and I think the earlier they get that, the, the more the world will open to them. Sure. I think what, I think that really comes naturally to children. Uh, the earlier you yes. expose it to them, yes. I think the people who really struggle with it are the teachers. Um, yes. you know, they, they've been taught in a lot of traditional teaching programs that they are the, you know, the fountain of knowledge or the distributor yeah. of knowledge. Right. And, asking kids or facilitating kids to build knowledge or create knowledge is I think kind of scary for the teachers sometimes. Yeah, it, it is. Uh, you know, what I found actually works a bit is to engage the teachers themselves in these making projects. And, and so I don't care if they're craft or, or cooking or anything is they begin to connect themselves to what this is about this process of learning, mm-hmm. of trying things, of you know, getting frustrated and gaining some resilience that you can solve a problem. Um, th- these are the things we're really teaching here, um, not not necessarily Arduinos and 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 I actually think if teachers took a frame of mind like coaches to use a sports analogy mm-hmm. again, um, that you know you don't play the game, you know you give feedback to to the players and you help organize it but mm-hmm. you 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 know that there's there's a line there that you need to respect uh of you know you're not throwing the ball that the student is and and let's see where it goes let's see if they're learning how to how to do this so being a good coach i think is is the answer in maker education is not being a subject matter expert because we can find that easily and Often, if the teacher steps back and says, I'm not the subject matter expert, we'll find among the kids that more of them are really ahead of where the teacher would be. Uh, and, you know, some will learn really fast on something and they can turn around and share it with others. And those who are trailing can catch up because they, they trust working with, 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 uh, with their peers. Sure. I think the, the key phrase that I find a lot of teachers are afraid to say is, I don't know in front of the students, but that's kind of the, that's the moment that like what you just described where 
kids will step up and, and fill that right. vacuum of, of knowledge by creating it. And it's just, you know, there's just an infinitesimal distance between I don't know and I'm curious, right? Mm-hmm. Right? It's like, that's a good question. How would we find that out, right? And, and I think if teachers grounded themselves more in that kind of curiosity and connecting to students around that, that it's a, it's a common journey we have. Uh, it isn't like I got there first and I know where everything is and I'll tell you where it is. That's, that's kind of a boring trip. Uh, exploring together and discovering things in the in that process is 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 it can be very joyful. Absolutely. So, what is something you think that people misunderstand about the maker movement, or what is something you think people have misunderstood? In the well, past? I think over time uh, we've seen a lot of you know people buying equipment and outfitting spaces and thinking their work is done. Um, oh, sure. And. I remember a teacher in St. Louis once telling me, he said, you know, the first year I got a closet. <laughs> and the second year I got a room off the closet. And the third year I got a, a budget for the room in the closet. Mm-hmm. And and I think that sort of uh, bootstrapping uh, not only invests the teachers and, and participants in it, uh, it gives them a sense of control and, and, and they get to define what it is. Uh, so I think in, it's, it's an hard argument to make somewhat, but the lack of resources has been almost a determining factor in the success of the maker movement, Uh, that people have to be scrappy and do it because they they really want to do it. I've seen places get large amounts of money, and even countries, you know, in China, there was, uh, in Shenzhen, the government was giving $50,000 per maker space. Wow. But uh, they had plenty of equipment, they had the space. But they had no staff. They had no people that that they had no community really, mm-hmm. and and I think even in, outside of schools where I've seen successes, often the community forms and then the space is created rather than the space is created and the community forms. So, sure. uh, you know, it's it again. It's that people side of it is really important, uh, and uh, the tools are a means to an end, but they're not the end themselves. Yeah, I've seen and heard from so many schools where they've outfitted huge innovation centers or very nice maker spaces. They've gotten everything plugged in, uh, online, connected, you know, to the network. And then there's this terrible moment of, uh, oh, no, now what? Yeah. Um, and I think the motive force is like what you described is, you know, that community that people are curious about something. They have a problem they want to solve. Yeah. And I think where we need to, you know, it's like it's always sort of bothered me, these sort of innovation centers and 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 big names for things uh, mm-hmm. that we actually don't know how you know where does innovation come from mm-hmm. what does what makes a person an innovator um, you, you know and the easy answer is oh they went to a college program or a graduate school and that made them that but it really isn't you know sure. uh, it's seldom that and uh, and I actually think there's an art to it and and it's it is getting back to practicing. And I, I, I've been using the term, there used to be in schools, uh, industrial arts was the term mm-hmm. of, of and, I, and I think we actually sort of need innovative arts or something like that. And to see it as a set of practices that you, you know, when you're say 13 or 15, I don't care if you, you have a, a world saving invention, but you've never done any of this. So it's just like playing a sport. You know, you've got to, you've got to learn to do it. 
and mm-hmm. and the more you do it under different circumstances and different contexts, you know, the better you'll get at doing that. And and I think we can actually cultivate innovators, and and I think it was one of the secrets that I realized when I was conceiving Make, and then certainly when I thought of Maker Fair was play. It was grounding mm-hmm. things in play. Uh, was the best way to encourage that kind of risk taking and recovery from failure and keep going because uh, you enjoyed the play, you enjoyed the process rather than high stakes testing and things where you're being judged and you know sent to the end of the line if you don't you know succeed. So I think the more making is grounded in play, the, the greater the, you know the, the student benefits from that. Sure. So where do you, I guess, where do you see the maker movement going or where do you hope it goes in the future, you know, 10, 20 years down the road? You know, we just, just, uh, our, our next issue of make is, is, uh, the headline is called fix our planet. And, uh, you know, I, I think we have to find ways to, uh, we have to find ways to, to, to solve the big problems we have around here. Um, I, I don't think in, in a lot of cases here in America, our governments are doing it. Um, mm-hmm. And it's going to take something of people with with determination and skills to to try to solve some of these bigger problems: homelessness, you know, uh, um, sustainability, and and so that that's kind of I guess a hope. But I also think there's there's a, a basic ec- economic problem we have with um, you know increasing automation and and. Uh, 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 you know, what is the kind of work we're going to do as, as adults or what will our children do? Mm-hmm. And I, I believe it, it, you know, there's almost endless opportunity for creative people to find work. Um, I think the repetitive jobs uh, of the, you know, that are, are frequently have been enablers of the middle class um, will be going away. But I, I think we have to create um there's a great phrase i wrote about uh, isaac asimov uh the science fiction writer uh went to the world's fair in 1964 and they asked him to predict the future for 50 years from there mm-hmm. and he got he is so he, he got so many things right he's it, very prescient um he he said things like you know we'll, we'll uh, have landed on mars but we you know, we'll not have, uh, not have a human there yet. Mm-hmm. You know, wow. we'll, we'll have uh, cars with robot brains. Um, and he, and, but he said our biggest problem in the future will be boredom. We won't know yeah. what to do with ourselves. And he said that only a creative few will be lucky enough to have meaningful work. And mm. I hope it's not a few, but I think he was talking about makers you know that I think we can create a world. We can create uh, ways for ourselves to be productive and valuable, and I think it's going to require that of more people in the future. Yeah, I agree completely. Well, Dale, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me, and this has been a really great conversation. Thank you, JD. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Depth and Light podcast. Thanks again to Dale Doherty. If you like this or other episodes, please consider writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Depth and Light, check out our website at depthandlight.com or follow us on Instagram and Twitter via the handle at depthandlight.